Gospel of Matthew. So this is message number 38, entitled, Even Dogs Get Hungry. We'll be looking at verses 21 to 39. So um, to get started, I'm going to read verses 21 to 23. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of those same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. So Jesus was born into a world with somewhere between 200 to 300 million people, the population of the world in the first century A.D., he lived less than 40 years. The area of Palestine was estimated to have somewhere between one to one and a half million people at that time, and more than half of those being Jews. Now this puts the population of Palestine at less than 1% of the world's population at that time. But at that same time, the country of China is estimated to have had somewhere between 59 to 65 million people, or about 30% of the world's population in the first century. Now, not long into the first century AD, uh, the Emperor Ping of the Han Dynasty in China was assassinated uh, by the social reformer Wang Mong, um, and he established a short-lived um, Qin Dynasty there in China, and he implemented social reforms, one of those being a 10% uh, income tax um, countrywide, uh, various land distributions and various things having to do with farming, and he was trying to build this socialist utopia. Um, and, but his reforms, coupled with a lot of flooding that happened in China in those days, led to a number of peasant rebellions, uh, one of the more colorful of which was known as the Red Eyebrows uh, rebellion, because for some reason they painted their eyebrows red. Um, I'm not really sure why about that. But So there was civil unrest, there was fighting, and this led to Wang's beheading, actually, in the end of the Qin dynasty um, that he set up, and the recovery of the Han dynasty, in fact, in China. But not only there, there were also serious earthquakes in parts of Europe during this time. We're talking about during the time of Jesus' life on the earth. On the earth. Rome's westward expansion was leading toward the invasion of Britannia. Um, lots of things going on, not to mention other parts of the world. So this is just a small mention of world events in the early first century A.D. And doesn't even cover, I'm sure, a fraction of the events that were going on outside of Palestine at that time. And so that brings us to this question. Why didn't Jesus go to any of these places? Why didn't he do anything about these, all these problems in the world? Why didn't he even talk about it in his day? What corresponds to world headlines today, Jesus said absolutely nothing about. Well, for some people, like the late atheist Christopher Hitchens, this reality actually undoes Christianity's claims. Uh, he would, in his typical uh, accent and rhetorical flair, 
uh, heard him say on a number of occasions that he would ask the question, well, why would God send a Savior to uh, a barbaric, barely literate, backward part of the Middle East instead of someplace like China? And this was a place that in his mind was more advanced, um, more important uh, in the world than um, the Jews of Israel would have been. Well, there is an answer to that question, if you have ears to hear it. And Matthew chapter 15 just might have something to contribute to it. So Matthew 15 opened with this conflict episode. Scribes and Pharisees of Jerusalem confronted Jesus with a charge against his disciples for not obeying the traditional ritual hand washings. And Jesus responded very sharply um, to the Pharisees. In fact, uh, so sharply that it seemed to surprise his disciples somewhat. He rebuked the Pharisees for nullifying God's commandments by enforcing their traditions. And then Jesus spoke a brief parable to the crowd and his disciples asked him what the meaning of these things were and, and if he knew that he had offended the Pharisees. And Jesus essentially told his disciples, leave the Pharisees alone. He said they were blind guides with blind followers and both would fall in a hole. Well, the rest of chapter 15 then, after this um, confrontation, the rest of chapter three, 15 gives us three miracle episodes. And these miracles might seem somewhat common at this point in the familiarity that you would have with Jesus' miracles, the great power that he has manifested at different times. But they are entirely uncommon, actually. And actually, they are quite unique um, in the ministry of Jesus. And these episodes, all three of them, at the end of chapter 15, are connected by, by a single commonality. And that commonality is that all of them involve Gentiles and not Jews. These were all Gentiles of the nations involved in these miracles and not Jews of Israel. The first one features a Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus for a miracle, and his response to her, again, seems somewhat odd, just like his response to the Pharisees. And that seems to be something of a, uh, of a theme in these particular episodes. So we need to know what is going on in this chapter and we're going to look at this in, in two parts, in verses 21 to 28, where the Canaanite woman comes to Jesus, and in verses 29 to 39, where we read about the feeding of the 4,000. And there's a little summary miracle that's kind of sandwiched between the two. So we'll start with the first part, beginning with verse 20, 21, in this Canaanite woman. Verse 21 reads, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. Now, the word that's used here for departed, it can simply mean left, but it also has the meaning of withdrawal. And given the context, that certainly is the, the intention um, of the word here. And I think some of the uh, more modern translations have even translated this word with, with withdrawal. Jesus withdrew, essentially, from um, the, the people of Israel for a time. So that certainly fits the context after this confrontation um, with the, the rejecting scribes and Pharisees. Now, Tyre and Sidon were on the Mediterranean coast. They're northwest of Galilee. 
And it was a Gentile region, a part of the old um, Phoenician Empire and, and area, in fact. It had a long, long history with Israel. And there was peace between them, uh, Israel and, and, and the, those of this region during the reigns of David and of Solomon. But otherwise, they seemed to be pretty persistent, bitter enemies. And the two cities are oftentimes lumped together, and they certainly were close together um, geographically. Um, they're oftentimes lumped together, and they actually, these two cities, um, become something of symbols, symbols of pride and greed and pagan idolatry. And you can find um, judgments pronounced against them in various places through the prophets in the Old Testament. Verse 22, And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. So a woman of this region follows Jesus around and is crying out to him. The implication is she's continually crying out to Jesus um, for him to do something about her daughter. And when you read this account here, and, and also Mark has the account as well, and, and both of them underline her Gentile status. I mean, that is emphasized in this account in various ways. But she does address Jesus as Lord and as Son of David. And it is quite remarkable, in fact, that she uses that title, Son of David, in particular, in addressing Jesus. Again, this is a Canaanite woman um, on the coast in the region of, of Tyre and Sidon. And she refers to Jesus as the son of David. But we do know also that people from that region had traveled to Galilee to see Jesus. News of Jesus, and, and sometimes in the uh, account it says, you know, his, front, his fame spread abroad. News of Jesus had certainly spread to those regions. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 talks about how people had come from those regions to see Jesus in Galilee. And we also know that there were people from those regions that were present at the Sermon on the Mount, according to Luke's account in Luke chapter number 6. Now the words, of the, the, or the word of Jesus rather, had certainly spread to those regions, and apparently it had spread that Jesus was there. And so she uh, came and she sought Jesus because her daughter was possessed and, and tormented by a demon. Now verse number 23. But he answered her, not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. So Jesus, again, with, an, with what seems like an odd response, had said nothing to this woman. Didn't acknowledge her, didn't respond to her, nothing. He just seems to just keep walking. But she didn't give up, and apparently she persisted in crying out, and even crying out to the twelve, seeking help, probably, probably hoping that maybe they would talk to Jesus and, and um, get him to do something for her. And so the disciples uh, finally are uh, bothered enough that they come to Jesus to, to seek to get him to send her away. And then we get his response in verse 24. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus responded in, a, in a, again, a puzzling way. And he's echoing the words that were given in instruction to the twelve back in chapter 10, verses 5 to 6, when he's going to send them out. And he told them they were not to take the good news of the kingdom and the kingdom signs 
into any of the ways of the Gentiles. They were to go only to the cities of Israel, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so Jesus is actually echoing these words his disciples, as his disciples ask him this question. He's saying, I'm not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So at this point, we're, we're set up to think that Jesus doesn't have anything to do with such a woman um, and her problems. In other words, it's not his concern. This is a, a Gentile woman, Canaanite woman. Mark says she's a Syrophoenician woman. Um, all of those descriptions essentially add up to she's a Gentile of that region. She's native to that region where they were, which was a Gentile region. And that's just no concern of his. She's got these problems, obviously, um, but that's just not his matter. His concern is only with the house of Israel. Verse 25. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. So she came to Jesus and bows before him. And she continued to ask him to help her. This was obviously a very desperate situation for her, a very hopeless situation for her. But nevertheless, she's seeking help from the Lord. Now, she's used this word, um, kurios, in the, in the Greek. And this word for Lord, it, it can sometimes uh, mean master, like in a servant-master relationship. It can sometimes just sort of be um, a polite way of, of addressing a superior, like the, the, the word sir, or something of, of that nature. But it is also the word that can be used to speak of Lord as we would think of as Lord in the Old Testament. It's a reference to deity. And I do believe that the context bears that out because Jesus does go on to speak of her great faith. I do believe that she is acknowledging his deity. Of course, she had previously called him the son of David. Verse 26, But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. So Jesus gives this third unexpected response. He seems to decline her request with the intention of insulting her. And he refers to Israel and his mission to Israel as giving bread to the children of Israel, which bread is something of a, of a recurring motif in this section of Matthew. If you haven't um, picked up on that, it, it certainly um, does play uh, in, in these couple of chapters. And he called her a dog. He said it was improper to set a meal for the children of the house and then to cast that food to dogs. Verse 27. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Now, at first glance, this woman responds in a way that seems quite clever and, and quick-witted. Um, however, when you keep the situation in mind and um, her uh, persistence and, and things to this point, I, I don't think there's any intention here to be humorous on her part. She um, has a daughter that she is 
gravely concerned about. And she has come to Jesus essentially um, almost, almost as if saying, you are going to have to force me away. I am begging for your help. So rather than really being just sort of a quip um, back to Jesus, actually what she's saying here is an honest confession. She says it is, she acknowledges it's true. She acknowledges him as Israel's Messiah. And she accepts her position as a Gentile dog and then asks for crumbs from the feast table of Israel. Verse 28. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. So obviously this episode turns right, right there. Um, Jesus said that the woman had great faith. She understood and believed what so many in Israel were rejecting and refusing. Now when she confessed her status as a Gentile, Jesus granted her request and healed her daughter instantly. And when we think about this, especially in light of the confrontation with the Pharisees, it's very fitting that we see here that this woman will eat bread in the kingdom of God, but not because she washed her hands, not because she observed any kind of rituals, not because she as a Gentile converted to Judaism, but because she believed in the son of David, in the son of Abraham, who as the son of God will bless all nations as savior of the world and not just the Jews. And then we go to the next part, beginning in verse 29. And first we have this little summary miracles that's, that starts and then we get to the feeding of the 4,000, which takes up most of the rest of the chapter. Verse 29. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. So Jesus, once again, he left from that region on the coast where he was and he traveled east and south um, to, the, to the eastern uh, and southeastern um, part of, of the Sea of Galilee. And this is actually a region known as the region of Decapolis, which Matthew doesn't name here, but Mark does in Mark chapter 7 and verse 31. Um, the Decapolis was a Gentile region, again, east and southeast of the Sea of Galilee. Um, it, it, it literally means the ten cities. Um, but whether or not there were actually ten cities, and, and sometimes it seems like maybe, they, maybe there was and, and, and maybe there wasn't, but nevertheless, um, th this was a Gentile area. This was a Gentile territory, and that's actually the way that Galilee was. It, it was sort of considered um, sort of to be um, out in the country um, for as far as Israel's concerned. In the northern part of Israel, um, it's much closer to surrounding Gentile areas, had some Gentile territories within Galilee and such. Uh, the, the people from Gentile even um, spoke a very distinct 
um, uh, very distinct Aramaic, as I understand it. They're sort of they had a, they had an accent, as you might say, uh, as you may uh, well think that I have, and so people would recognize that and and know that th- these are these are people from Galilee, just like we might uh, be in a store and say, "Where in the south are you from?" Uh, when we run into somebody around here. Well, let's go to verse thirty. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame. Blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast him down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So again, we read now that great crowds came out to Jesus, but you've got to keep track of where you are. This is not great crowds of Jews that came out to Jesus. This is great crowds of Gentiles that came out to Jesus in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought with them all kinds of people that had... Uh, physical problems, handicaps, deformities, uh, sicknesses, diseases, and etc. And Jesus healed them all, and it seems that there was no hesitation, and there was no odd responses or, or interactions um, from what we're told. Verse 31 says, Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see. And they glorified the God of Israel. So the crowds were struck with wonder at the miracles. And the Gentile identity of the crowds is highlighted by the fact that they glorified the God of Israel. In other words, here we have the nations praising the God of Israel for the work of Israel's Messiah. So just as the miracles that Jesus performed, these were messianic kingdom signs. We see those signs now also in the nations being blessed and praising God through Israel, which is just, of course, what God promised to Abraham. Verse number 32. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude. Because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. So Jesus calls his disciples to him. Once again, he's moved with compassion. And, and the, uh, the idea of being moved with compassion does, does speak of, of, of an emotional feeling. He has a, an emotional feeling of pity um, toward this large crowd's Um, that have gathered around him from these Gentile cities. They've been with him three days, and they don't have any food. Now, at this point, we think, well, we've seen this before. And so we're we're being set up for another multitude-feeding miracle that parallels the feeding of the 5,000. And it does parallel the feeding of the 5,000 very closely. But there are a few differences between the feeding of the 4,000 here and the feeding of the 5,000 that we looked at previously. Now, obviously, right on the very start of it, you say, well, the numbers are different. The one's 5,000 men besides women and children. This one's 4,000 men besides women and children. So, yes, the numbers are different, but not really different enough. Is it, is it really less of a miracle to be able to feed 4,000 men with women and children um, with, with you know, seven loaves and a, and a few fish? So that's not really different enough to to affect the miracle. But the feeding of the 5,000 took place near Bethsaida. 
and was a Jewish crowd. And in fact, when you read John's account of it in John chapter number 6, Jesus deliberately connects the feeding of the 5,000 with the manna from heaven with Moses and Israel in the wilderness. And we know as a result of that, that those Israelites in that crowd wanted to force Jesus to be their king and essentially make an uprising against the Roman Empire. So that was a very Jewish crowd. And the, the feeding of the 4,000 happened in Decapolis with a very large Gentile crowd, quite different. And Jesus tells the, his disciples he's not going to send the crowds away hungry. Verse 33, And the disciples say unto him, When should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? So the disciples respond in a very practical way. They respond in a very similar way to what we saw at the feeding of the 5,000. Essentially, they say, we're in an uninhabited desert place. We're, we're, we're in the wilderness. We're far from homes or villages. Um, where, where are we going to get food to be able to feed them? Now, at this point, there's many um, people that, that come here and, and they express surprise at the disciples, asking essentially, like, how could they possibly be this dull? that they had witnessed the feeding of the 5,000, took up 12 baskets full, and now they're in the very same spot. Shouldn't, shouldn't they have caught, wait a minute, we, you know, we've, we've been here before. We, we gave the wrong answer last time. Let's give the right answer this time. You know, how, how could they be so silly? Well, they were literally in the same situation before, but it seems like the disciples here didn't think it would be the same. And so why is that? Well, the fact is, here... They are in a Gentile region with a Gentile crowd. And that means that the disciples didn't think that Jesus would feed them like he did the 5,000 men in the Jewish crowd, which had obvious overtones of the prophesied kingdom feast. Jesus had first also refused the Canaanite woman. Think about, again, these odd responses that Jesus gave to the Canaanite woman. He said he was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said it wasn't right to take bread, literally take bread away from children and give it to dogs. So in other words, the disciples actually had good reason here to think that Jesus would not repeat that miracle, which he connected again with Moses and the manna in the wilderness. And he wouldn't do that here in the Gentile region with this Gentile crowd. There was good reason for them to think that. And so they're just merely approaching it from a practical standpoint. Jesus had said that he felt pity for them. Let's, let's give them something to eat. And the disciples are just simply asking, well, how, how are we going to do that um, in, this, in this place the way that, that it is? Verse 34, and Jesus saith unto them, how many loaves have you? And they said, seven and a few little fishes. So they had seven loaves of bread. Again, these are more like probably round buns of, of, of bread. Um, and they had a few small fish. And the word that's used here actually the, does, have the, it does have the idea of small. These were little fish. I think literally it's translated something like petty fish. Um, we, have, we have small fish um, and just a few of them and, and seven loaves of bread. But again, just like it was in the case of the 5,000, 
though these, though these numbers might be a little bit different, still it's, it's absolutely nothing in regard to thousands of people who are hungry and have nothing to eat. Verse 35. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. Um, once again, unfolding like the previous episode. And he took the seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks and brake them and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. So he took the loaves, he took the fish, he blessed, he blessed them, he given thanks in prayer. He broke the loaves, uh, which is a highly symbolic act in light of the kingdom feast prophecy and the implications of fellowship for that. And again, he gives it to the disciples to distribute to them. And it says in verse 37, And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets full. So they all ate to full satisfaction and even to the point of having food left over. So again, no, no one uh, was, was left hungry. No one was left without. There was, a, there was an overage um, of food. And we read that they took up seven baskets full of the remains. Now, the word for basket that is used here, it is different than the word that was used in the feeding of the 5,000. That, that word in the feeding of the 5,000 referred to a smaller basket. This word indicates here a larger basket. And in fact, this word is only used five times in the New Testament. Four of those times are in the gospel accounts and are in reference to this miracle. And the only other time that it is used is in reference to the basket in Damascus that Paul escaped in when he was let down, hidden in a basket and let down over the wall. So the word being different, describing a larger basket. Now I also understand that this particular basket was something that was more common in use among Gentiles than it was for Jews, which again just again highlights the Gentile nature of this episode. And we read in verse 38, And they that did eat were 4,000 men beside women and children. So the number is given, again, very similar to the feeding of the 5,000, but this time it's given at 4,000, um, again, noting that there were also women and children beside this. So, again, the number was easily at least twice the number of the men. Certainly with women and children included, there would at least have had to have been twice that, 8,000 um, people, and, and certainly could have been more. So uh, a very, uh, very large-scale miracle, just the same. Verse 39 says, And he sent away the multitude and took ship and came into the coasts of Magdala. So Jesus sent the multitude away, and he gets in a boat, and he crosses the Sea of Galilee at this point, going all the way over to the western shore, and this is south of Tiberias, um, here near, the, near this region, this coast of, of Magdala. So now we come back to our question, why didn't Jesus go to China? I mean, there were way more people in China. Why didn't Jesus go to other places in the world where there was tragedy, where there was devastation and disaster? 
Why didn't Jesus talk about all of these current events in the world, the disasters and the politics and the wars and the rumors of wars and the kings against kings and nations against nations and famines and poverty and on and on and on that we could go, things taking place in the world all around. Why didn't Jesus go to these places? Why didn't he talk about these things? Well, we might read the account of the Canaanite woman and we might say, well, Jesus didn't go to those places or talk about those events because they just were not his concern. He was only concerned about Israel. And that answer just wouldn't be quite right. He did come to Israel, and his purpose was certainly the offer of the kingdom to Israel. And we've seen that already in numerous ways as we've been going through Matthew. Now, of course, Israel would reject the kingdom and their king and crucify him. And, of course, that was no... Um, that, that was no sort of sidetrack or, or unexpected um, shortcut or, or turn off or anything for God's plan. That was the plan from the foundation of the world, so that was nothing of a surprise. So just as the kingdom sign miracles that we've seen a number of just as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew to this point, those kingdom sign miracles were just small previews of kingdom blessings. And so here Jesus takes this little foray into Gentile territories. And that's actually another small preview of kingdom blessings when all nations of the earth will be blessed through Israel and Israel's king when Jesus returns. So the reason that Jesus didn't go to China and all the other things we were talking about, is really the same reason that he told his disciples to leave the Pharisees alone. I mean, think, think about that. He said they were blind guides leading blind followers and they were all going to fall in a hole. It might seem like the disciples needed to take action. I mean, here's the, the Pharisees, the, the leaders of Israel, the most esteemed and respected teachers of Israel, and they're misleading Israel and misleading Israel toward judgment. Surely the disciples should do something about it. Well, Jesus says leave them alone. Why? Well, again, the answer is back in the parables in Matthew chapter 13 and, and the revelation that he gave to his apostles. That was Jesus' first coming was simply not the time for that. So yes, there were kings fighting against kings and nations rising against nations and all of these tragedies and devastations and things going on in the world at that time just like there has been throughout all history since the fall. But this age, Jesus showed, is the age when the weeds grow along with the citizens of the kingdom. But when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom at the end of this age, then he will intervene in every nation on the face of this earth. And he will bring justice and judgment to the earth. Well, of course, this also foreshadows the gospel to the Gentiles. 
that we see in the, in the book of Acts. We see that message spreading out as you work your way through Acts, beginning in Jerusalem and, and spreading out uh, into other parts of the, of the earth. This is what Paul explained as the temporary blinding and setting aside of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles be brought in. So it's, again, it's just a little preview. It's just, just a little foretaste of what is to come. And of course, in the more immediate context, this message is, is overwhelmingly clear. It's Jesus, not tradition, who saves. It's Jesus who, who cleanses. He cleanses this Canaanite woman's daughter. He cleanses those that, that came to him. It's Jesus who cleanses, not rituals and, and customs and, and man-mandated procedures. And in Jesus' kingdom, even the dogs, like us, and that's, that's who we are to Israel in that time. We're like this Canaanite woman. Even dogs like us who believe in him will come to the table.